We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley. Go hope my co-host as usual, Joe Quinn. Usual suspect. Hi there. Thank you, Joe. Today we're speaking with Irish-American author and activist Chris Fogarty. Born in Chicago, raised in Ireland, Chris was an engineer by profession and toured the world, worked around the world on major engineering projects. He has spent years now investigating the truth about the Irish famine in quotes and runs a website where he exposed the truth that the deaths of millions of Irish people in the 1840s and 50s was a result of systematic policy by the British government to starve the so-called rebellious Irish. Chris has been a regular columnist for some 19 years for Irish American News. He runs the website irishholocaust.org and is the author of Ireland 1845-1850 the perfect Holocaust, and who kept it perfect, in quotes. Now, British and U.S. intelligence have tried to silence Chris because of his human rights advocacy on behalf of Irish Catholics in the north of Ireland, and, of course, his work to expose the truth about the so-called Irish famine. They've attempted to frame him for murder. We'll be trying to get his story from later. Chris is the Chicago agent of the Irish National Graves Association, and is assisting in the process of systematically installing grave markers across the island of Ireland for some of the hundreds of mass graves that are known to now exist. So, well, a very warm welcome to Behind the Headlines, Cade Mila Falcha, to Christopher Fogarty. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Chris. Um, we, I think we'll just start off with, uh, because it's a recent... Uh, recently published uh, and it's I think it's a kind of like a culmination of maybe our part in a, in a certain sense a culmination of your work at least on the Irish uh, Holocaust um, you're you just recently published a book as Neil just mentioned in um, just last end of last year uh, can you tell us a little bit about that book and what what's in it or what's behind it yes well, first of all in general terms approximately 5 million people Irish Catholics were murdered between 1845 and 1850, but the killing did not stop then. It continued until Britain repatriated its landlords from Ireland, and nearly all of that was accomplished between 1900 and 1910. So the killing went on, and it, it was accomplished by the removal at gunpoint of Ireland's abundant crops, its grain crops, its livestock, its vegetables, its dairy products, poultry products, from the whole country, marched at gunpoint to the nearest port for export. And it was sent largely to England, but also to its army throughout its empire, and even to feed the, the, uh, the black slaves of, of English planters in the Caribbean. Uh, mm. there's, there's quite a bit about, about that in the book by William Cobbett, a British MP at the time, who described that, and described that Irish food kept a quarter million 
refugees alive, loyalists from the northeastern part of the United States who fled the new revolutionaries. They fled the new America in order to remain British, and they fled to New Brunswick mm-hmm. in Canada. And, they, and there they were kept alive by food from Ireland, according to this British MP, William Cobbett. So what this, what this is, is a, an expose of, a, of one of history's worst genocides that has been kept covered up today. And the strangest thing about the Irish government is that, so far as I know, no other nation, no other government, I should say, on earth has ever deliberately and carefully and with great intent and with great detail uh, concealed a genocide of its own people. I've never heard of such a thing until I learned. In fact, in going to school in Castlereagh, County Roscommon, the beautiful Maris brothers there who did their very best with us, mm-hmm. they lied to us for the brother Enda, uh, my main teacher there, lied to his students for his entire 50-year teaching career by calling it famine and referring to it as somehow uh, just something that was visited by God, a force majeure, just a mm-hmm. problem, something that came upon the people. Uh, and, and something very important in this is that whenever one uses the term famine about any nation, it imputes to that nation, to the, to the people of that nation, a stupidity. In the mm-hmm. case of Ireland, the lie is that they grew only and relied upon only one failure-prone crop. There was nothing but potatoes from sea to sea. Mm. And that is a shocking, a shocking smear of the people. They were murdered, and then in death, the five million who were murdered in death have been slandered, smeared, that they, they fell into a lethal trap of their own making. That is shocking. Chris, just to, just to backtrack a little bit here, I mean, just for our listeners, um, I mean, probably a lot of them will have heard about the Irish famine. And in fact, um, I think, I mean, that's the way, it, as you've been mentioning, that's the way it's been officially recorded, even in Ireland, you know. I mean, one of the things yeah. I noticed was that your website, which is irishholocaust.org, um, you have a, a date, a year stamp on there of uh, 1995. Was that yeah. when you first published? That's when you first published that information. Uh, but yeah. back in 1995, I mean, uh, there was nobody, I think, in Ireland who had any notion whatsoever that the Irish famine was anything but what they were told. So it's, it's actually quite amazing to me that 20 years ago you were talking about this um, because it's only in recent years that I've kind of really, you know, maybe in the last uh, five to ten years that I've kind of it's come on my radar. And I think in that period of time there's been a lot of stuff that has come out in general about history, etc. But uh, how... Um, 20 years ago, what was the reception to this idea that... Because just for, again, for our listeners, the official story is that um, at maximum, two million people uh, died in Ireland in this famine, which was just because all the Irish had to eat was potatoes, and there was a, a blight, and two million people died, and two million people fled. The consensus is actually one million deaths and one more million emigrated. Right, yes. So but, two million total. Right, two million total, exactly. So, although, you know, they don't talk too much about it, it's just, you know, it was a famine, poor Ireland, that kind of thing. And this is... Per, this is been around, uh, I mean, this is common knowledge in Ireland. It's, it's, it's kind of... I, I went to school, high school in Ireland in the late 90s. Mm. And this was yep. still what we were being taught. I was being taught this by Franciscan brothers, just like you were 60 years prior. So there was absolutely no change. And yep. as far as I know to date, no change. So back in back 20 years ago, when you 
produced this inf- information and, uh, or found this information and, and tried to spread it. What was the reception? Well, the reception among among Irish immigrants here in Chicago and in, and in general uh, Irish Chicagoans and Irish Illinoisans is that they uh, they knew this because there were mass graves. There were, every community has its own mass grave in Ireland. They still whisper about it. There are four uh, in and around Castlereagh County, Roscommon. Uh, my wife and I just got a memorial over one of them, the one out in the country. But there are a few more at the workhouse. But the response was uh, was completely positive, except anyone. I noticed that everyone associated with the Irish Consul General here in Chicago, the Irish Consulate, they do not want to know. The Irish Consul mm-hmm. General has gone around giving speeches in opposition to my work. The Irish government once November third became Irish Holocaust Commemoration Day about 15 years ago, uh, and has been so. In, in very varying groups, not it's not entirely widespread yet, but it is in the United States, Canada, the Anglophone countries, Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, uh, England, Scotland, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and it has been commemorated there often by by priests, often by my masses, and sort of like a holy day of obligation. Mm-hmm. But that date was selected because it was on that date in 1845 that a delegation of 22 Irishmen went to Lord Hatesbury, British Lord Hatesbury, in Britain's vice regal lodge in. Phoenix Park to beg him to stop removing Ireland's food and additionally to, to cease all distilling and, and brewing in Ireland in order to save the grain for the people. Mm. He read to them from a paper about potatoes and blight, which he, which he poo-pooed. So November the 3rd, there are two events commemorated on that day every year. One, the official beginning of the Irish Holocaust and number two, the beginning of the famine big lie that, that Lord Hatesbury promoted at the time. And the Irish governor, some, for some reason, and I shouldn't say Irish, I should think Irish in quotation marks, the mm. so-called Irish government have been working very hard against me. Once, no, once November, about four years ago, the Irish government got behind a taxi driver in Dublin, the name of uh, Blanche, Blanche, yes, who uh, has set up some day in May, a meaningless day in May, to commemorate the starvation of Ireland. But of course, they're they're commemorating they're commemorating along with Lord Hatesbury a famine, mm-hmm. a potato famine. Uh, the real date for the for the Holocaust of Ireland, that what was really done, is November the third. The result here in Chicago is that they they stepped up. We tried to get it taught in the schools here in Illinois, and the Irish Consul General went around promoting potato famine now. She gives speeches everywhere regarding potato famine. Mm. And uh, so my work was actually the first. It, my eyes were partly opened by Cecil Woodham Smith's The Great Hunger, written in 1962 or three, And in it, she, she cited, she recorded, wrote about the food removal by, nine, by 13 named British regiments. Uh, had she not buried that under other contradictory false statements, I would have known then that it was not a famine but was a genocide. But she did, she, she buried it under many, many pages of contradictory information, claiming, for example, that one of the causes of, or the a chief cause of the death in Ireland is that women had forgotten how to cook anything but potatoes. 
The problem was culinary deficiencies. If it weren't a cover-up of the murder of millions, and then she also said that no grain was grown anywhere, hardly anywhere in the west of Ireland. My book right. completely demolishes that by, by presenting the precise locations of every grain mill, every grain kill, every brewery, every distillery, every flour mill in the country. And she said there were none, none whatever in Sligo and, and Donegal. And in fact, those two counties have, the, I, th- I believe, the greatest number of grain mills and grain kills of any county in Ireland. So she lied in her book. And why she did it, I don't know. I think maybe to get whatever little bit of truth she was permitted to get out. And she did name uh, 13 British regiments, and she was smeared for the next two decades. Uh, Mm -hmm. Irish academia smeared her relentlessly. You might have heard, if you were going to secondary school at the time in in Ireland or shortly after, you might have been in on part of the smearing campaigns because academia set about the destruction of her reputation. Mm -hmm. So what I did then... I was doing, I then forgot about it and continued using the word we were taught in school, famine. Her book had not corrected that falsehood in my mind. So I was doing my grandfather's biography after finishing up a job in El Salvador and went to the public record office in, in Kew outside London because he, I have learned to be ashamed to say, was a career British soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, his sister died between her house, between the family house and the local the post office in Durrell County Leash looking for his army pay. He kept his siblings and perhaps his parents alive for some years. And he joined the army for that purpose. He walked mm-hmm. from Durrell to Port, to Port Leash, not to Port Leash, to Abbey Leash to, to sign up. He took the Queen's shilling. He participated in the, uh, the destruction of the, of the Aborigines in Australia. He was in the Maori Wars in New Zealand. He was in India. He marched along with 40th Regiment of Foot in the the celebrations when Queen Victoria became the Empress of India in 1875. He retired in 1881, the very same year that the British government gave up the Cat of Nine Tails as a means of military discipline. So so all of that happened. So I was there doing, and I I found that his, his regiment, the 40th Regiment, in reading background on it, had been when he was five, six, seven, and eight years of age, my grandfather, the regiment that he later joined was removing the food at gunpoint from South County Galway to the port of Galway for export. And I said, this, this is, how can this be? I, I always was taught everywhere, the, the only word there is famine. How can this be? So I, I immediately studied further, and I eventually found that more than half of the British army at the time, their entire empire army at the time, were in Ireland removing Ireland's food at gunpoint. More than half. It took more, the... more than half. Yes, in fact, precisely. Uh, I'm, there's an error in my website that the book corrects, and it, it, it was precisely 67 British regiments in Ireland, of a total of 130 total regiments in their Empire Army. So just slightly over half of the British uh, Empire Army were in Ireland removing its food at gunpoints. And that has been called a famine. It is absolutely shocking. So I got that information and I put it into a pamphlet and got it around. We were beaten up, um, my wife and I, passing them out at the Milwaukee Irish Fest back around around, around that time in the late 80s. And uh, beaten up by who? she was smashing the, 
Pardon me. It was a security a security guard at the Milwaukee Fest smashed my wife in the mouth with a transceiver like a brick at the time. They were big at the time, mm. and she was spouting blood. I immediately uh, shouted for the police and ran after him, but the police came. They were very very close by. They soon came, put handcuffs on me, and then pushed me backwards so I fell onto concrete on my handcuffed hands behind my back. They then t- pulled me up and brought us both, my wife still spouting, spouting blood. We, they took us to a, a guard shack for Milwaukee Irish Fest in, the, in Meyer Park along the lakefront in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they held us there for about four hours until my wife's lips went down. It, it, blew, it, 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 uh, it became swelled up like a baseball. And when she was, uh, was down, they took us to the hospital. And they treated our wounds. I, I was wounded as well as she by, oh, by the police. She was wounded by a security guard. I was injured by the police. After a, a few hours in the hospital, we were, we were fixed up, bandages and things on us, and the police took us to the local lockup in the middle of Milwaukee, and we weren't released until noon the following day. So we were, and I was charged with some crimes also, but within a day or two, we received notice from Milwaukee that all charges were being dropped. And and to not and and I I sought I sought legal assistance to sue them for it, but couldn't get anyone to do it. So that was a small one small item. Yeah, there was no, uh, there was later, no obvious there was no obvious link between you handing out these leaflets exposing the truth about uh, what the British did in Ireland and the attack by the guard, right? No, that was a, specifically his purpose to stop us. As we really? walked by one of the one of the officers and handed him one, he said, "You can't do that here." So I thought, oh. who, who, would, who would say no if all he has to do is read it? So we continued distributing. Within about four, three or four minutes from them, my wife had her lips split open by this uh, security guard. Huh. So it's specifically have you any about idea who we was paying. behind that? Have you any uh, idea yes. what the... Yes, of course. And, and in fact... While I was still locked locked up and, and, and they put handcuffs on me so very tight I was in agony, my wife was outside the door of this security shack and the Irish Consul General came along and she said to him, you're behind this. Now, if he were innocent, he'd say, behind what? He said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and we right. went to the guard shack where I was held. So the, the Irish Consul General was behind it, or at least very, very much approving of it. He was, he was there, one of the participants in, in, in the agony I went through at the, at, at the result of the tightened handcuffs and, the, mm-hmm. and all the injuries. So that's the Irish Consul General. But later, uh, we got a warning from a friend. In fact, I have a photograph here at the Maris Brothers School in Castle County, Roscommon, uh, there are three or four classes. They're all in one. And sitting in front, directly in front of me, is a man by the name of Joe Doyle. We were the same age. Like me, he was born in the States. And his family went back and brought him with them when he was a child like me. And uh, he phoned me and he said, Chris, i got to talk to you. I said, okay, Joe, you're talking. He said, I can't do it over the phone. I said, stop by. He said, I can't talk to you there either. So I said, mystified, well, what do you want to do? He said, meet me tomorrow morning at the Golden Flame restaurant up on, on Higgins Avenue in Sayre in the northwest side of Chicago. So we met him there the next day, my wife and I both, and he said, your lives are in danger. I said, Joe, we don't have any enemies. He said, well, 
Some of my FBI colleagues have been bribed and subverted by MI5, and they're planning crimes against you to silence you and the work you're doing. So I thought about that, and he gave you a whole lot more detail, the form of the bribes, how it all happened, who, who bit and who didn't and all, how many trips they took over there, over to, uh, to London and from there to Belfast. These are FBI agents. But I said, Joe, you're in law enforcement. We're not. What are you doing about it? He said, there's nothing I can do. I said, you swore an oath of office to uphold the Constitution at all times. You don't have an option. He said, it's all happening over my head. There's absolutely nothing I can do. So we thought, Mary and I, but we didn't communicate at the moment, but later we, we both thought the same thing. If he didn't know his own oath of office, it is more likely that he had his whole story wrong. So we, we sort of forgot about it. But uh, a month or a month and a half later, there was a triple murder in Winnetka, Illinois, of people I'd never heard of in my life. And we learned later that I was framed for that by a, by a signed murder investigation report. We have a copy of that. In the While we were facing charges of an other equally bogus charges for which we were locked up in the federal lockup in Chicago, barely made it out on bail. 100000 for me, 50000 for my wife, and two others, Frank O'Neill, his house, uh, the deed to his house, and another 10000 for uh, uh, Tony McCormick from the north, Carrick Fergus. So we got out, however, after three days, barely, barely, barely made it. And uh, we were almost denied it, obviously. The, the FBI did not want to allow us to get out on bail. By getting out on bail, we were able to hire lawyers and to defend ourselves and had we remained in the federal prison we would have gone or into jail we would have gone from jail to trial to prison and would never get out but we did we did uh, bail out after three days in the, in the federal lockup and 15 months later on that second set of charges we proved that the only evidence against us was an FBI audio tape that was scientifically proven to be criminally fabricated nothing was ever done to the criminals and I, I, I wrote to the judge Judge George Lindbergh demanding that he notify law enforcement about the crimes that were perpetrated in front of him in his courtroom hmm. and he wrote back saying that as a judge in that courtroom that he's not allowed to to arrest anybody so I wrote back to him uh, you have just completely misrepresented my demand, which I now repeat, that you notify law enforcement of the crimes that were perpetrated in front of you in that court and decided the case number and the time and everything else. And he never answered the second one. So that is mm. that is what we're faced with. We have uh, the rule of law is very little better in the United States now than it was under British rule. So, um, yeah. Um, so what you're saying in essence is that just there was a random kind of murder committed in the U.S. and the FBI chose to fabricate evidence against you because you were uh, active in promoting the truth about the Holocaust in Ireland and the British crimes in Ireland uh, 150 years beforehand. That, that is correct. Uh, and and meanwhile, by the way, on the afternoon when the when the triple murder was found. The local police were all summoned together, and they were all asked by the by their commander to write down the name of any possible suspect. 
when the cards were collected minutes later, there was only one name on a number of the cards. There was only, and only one name. And that was the name of the murderer. But the FBI agent Buckley arrived the next day, put himself in charge of the investigation, and prohibited the local police from pursuing the actual murderer. And uh, at the time, it was it was uh, there was a death penalty here in Illinois. I would have gotten the death sentence, being older and a member of the, of the in their mind the terrorist IRA. I would have gotten the death sentence, lethal injection. But six months later, six months while he remained on the street in in in, in Winnetka, Illinois, the murderer saved perhaps my life, but certainly my my freedom for the rest of my life. He saved me by blabbing through his FBI cover. So the FBI kept a murderer on the street, a triple murderer on the street for six months in order to do work for the British government. Yeah. Well, wow. why, why were you, when you say you were seen as a, a member of the IRA, where, that, that was just more fabrication? Uh, yes. In fact... The, the IRA almost certainly would never allow me to join because to be a member of an organization, you must commit to it. And I, I will never commit to any organization because to become a member of a group, you tend to become a salesman rather than an analytic. You tend mm -hmm. to find everything that's good about that group and to deny anything that's negative. So they would mm -hmm. never they would never have allowed me to join. But it was a, it was a means by which, you see, they could... Uh, sully dirty up the the jury pool in in right. in the Chicago area. Yeah, and make it and look like jury. you may well look at make it look like you may well be uh, a killer type thing. If they consider yeah. you as an IRA member, then it's more plausible that you maybe were responsible for the, for these this yes. triple murder. Yes, it, it's, so it, it sounds in the like, course of the. It, go ahead, Chris. It sounds like there there's a pattern. I mean, we're talking now about the 1990s, right? A, Yes. Late 80s or late 80s. Okay. Of course, 19, this early, 19, early 1990s. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Just before the so-called peace process in Northern Ireland. Well, it sounds like there, there was a pattern. This is background for our readers. There's a pattern of both British and U.S. Uh, authorities clamping down on, on anyone they perceived as being a threat to their designs. I mean, which, which have always been the case in, in Northern Ireland. So, uh, you would have been caught up in as a quote-unquote prominent activist on behalf of Irish people and their history. Uh, you were probably caught up as part of a general kind of observation against anyone who's was rocking the boat. Yeah. Yes, there were a number of people. There was the there was the Brooklyn Five, including a wonderful man from Nina Tipperary. He died at about ninety-four years of age, maybe ten years ago. Michael Flannery. Um, there were five of them charged with sending weapons to the IRA, except that they had been sending weapons. In fact, a comical uh, result of it is that and it was a turning point in the trial against them. They were all they were all released. They were all uh, vindicated. But their position was, you have charged us with sending weapons to the IRA for the last five years. We have been sending weapons to the IRA for the last 20 years. And we did so with the assistance of the FBI and the CIA. We, it, mm -hmm. was their weapons that we, it was their weapons that we sent to Ireland. That's why it's always a murky game to go that far with such organizations, because they're riddled and controlled, ultimately, 
from the outside. From the outside. From the very enemy. Yeah, so what that happened? The, 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 yeah. So there, there are quite there are quite a few Irish in the in the FBI, but it, under Thatcher and Reagan, she was able to convince Reagan to to completely turn against the IRA, and so a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of Irish Americans sort of think that the United States government is generally on the side of the Irish in general terms, and they're not. And, and no. what's more, they, can't, they cannot be because, as Tip O'Neill says, when he was betrayed by the by US, um, Irish ambassador to the United States, Sean Donlan, uh, who came out, here to the, came out here again on a specific visit to stop uh, Irish-American support for the Birmingham Six, and uh, that kind of thing. You know, in fact, he was here. Father, two priests came out looking for justice for the Birmingham Six, and Sean Donlan, the, Amer- the Irish ambassador to the United States, contacted U- U.S. Congress members while they were in the air, telling them they would be arriving and to not meet with them. And so he succeeded. The two priests went back, Father Ray, Raymond Murray and Father Dennis Fall came out here and they were they couldn't get any politician to meet with them it took it took something like 16 more years to finally undo that bit of uh, injustice against the birmingham they were tortured as you know into into signing confessions mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but meanwhile in the during our 15 months of our pre-trial litigation in chicago in defending ourselves against these mi5 fbi crimes our lawyers got a, an anonymous tip to go to the Winnetka Police Department and have a look at the Langard murder investigation report. They did that, and in fact, the tip has to have come from that police station because they very generously and, 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 and promptly gave them photocopies of the signed police reports that framed me for those murders. So then we had, our lawyers then had had a whole lot, they had proof that the evidence against us was a criminal fabrication, a criminally fabricated audio tape, and then a previous frame up of murders for which the murderer was being convicted in those very days. And so, uh, they, they couldn't. They couldn't. There was no way they could possibly win this. So the the U.S. prosecutor pled U.S. Judge George Lindbergh to please allow him to abandon all charges against all four of us. Mm. Uh, they then they then tried to infiltrate us again. The same FBI agent through a David Rupert, a lifelong criminal from upstate New York, and he did get our our leader, the wonderful old man who was who trusted everybody. From from outside Belfast to uh, to meet with him in private, and uh, they tried to they they tried to get him to buy weapons for the IRA. By that time, we knew even if we wanted to, we knew that that it was a ticket to jail. So we would have a vote on it, Friends of Irish Freedom, and we would we would have a vote on it, and it would be Frank yes, and everyone else no. Then the same thing for a few weeks. So Frank dropped out and formed his own unit that was headed by this MI5 FBI mole. Uh, after getting little done here, because he wasn't very successful, uh, the the frame-up artist, the F- FBI agent, Patrick, quote, Edward, unquote, Buckley, went to Ireland in 1994, along with Rupert, and they remained there until the evening of 
August 15th, 1998. The, the Omar bombing. Of the, yes, that ended their mission in Ireland. Yes, that, that the name Irish Rupert's, the name Rupert's familiar. He was an FBI informant, yes? Uh, he was on the payroll of uh, both the FBI and MI5. And he, right. Yes. Once we learned that they were about to, when they were going, they were going to be framing Michael McKevitt for OMA, we had experience with Buckley, of course. He had made two attempts against me, one against my very life, and locked us up and did, used, the, used the system to the extent he could to railroad us. So we thought, we had, we had never known or heard of Michael McEvitt, but we said we owe him the kind of, 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 of uh, defense that we were able to muster in our own behalf against these criminals. So we went up to upstate New York, my wife and I, and we went to, to that is say, David Rupert's home ground, where he was born and raised. Uh, he's not a Mohawk Indian, as he said, and that, and that gave him entree to various groups, including in Ireland, by the way. And he ran a pub, the Dow, the, the, the Dow's, Dow's Inn pub on the, on the Leitrim shoreline, which is only about, I don't know, half a mile long or something mm-hmm. on the Atlantic coast. And uh, for, for you, as, as a front for the FBI. But he, he was a lifelong criminal, according to a New York State affidavit, that was introduced into the trial of McEvitt. And we brought back, and I sent over, four fraudulent bankruptcy filings by Rupert. And he told the court in Dublin that one of those filings was uh, because of an accident, uh, an accident of one of his trucks, except that his bankruptcy filing was two weeks before the truck accident. Anyway, we, we talked to numerous people. I talked to the main uh, truck repair garage in Messina, New York, just about on the St. Lawrence River, way up north. Uh, He claimed a Messina, New York record, that he was the only person in Messina's history to ever do business with David Rupert without being defrauded. And he proudly he proudly announced that that uh, record that he was the sole the sole one who had ever managed that. So, anyways, Rupert was over in Ireland, and they were framing McEvitt, and we saw. I hadn't seen. Um, Mary and I attended that that trial in the special criminal courts on Green Street in Dublin, and we saw what was going on. We were staying in a, in a guest house in Hoth and every evening we'd watch television, every morning we'd buy the newspapers and we're wondering what is wrong with Ireland's news media. They're not, they're not seeing what we're seeing in, the, in that courtroom. But there's nothing we can do about that. It was just shocking. And the charge against, the, against Michael McEvitt was not the murder of 29 people, but that was worked in to the reporting on it, to where yes. the first sentence would be about the trial, the second sentence would be, and his organization murdered 29 people in Oma. And so publicly, that's what he was being tried for. But in the courtroom, it was something different, membership. But again, the public were, the public were being fed this, this, uh, this falsehood by the news media, and, yes. uh, and that's what stuck. So we were there and we saw, we hadn't seen uh, FBI agent Buckley in exactly 10 years since he 
The last day we saw him was in, in court when we defeated him in federal court in Chicago. The next time we saw him was in on Green Street, the crim, special criminal courts room in, in, in on Green Street in Dublin. And it, it, we were shocked, of course, to see him. And so yeah, blatantly... What was his interest in the case? Why, why was he there? For, for, he was there for MI5. In right. order to drive home, in order to drive home the Good Friday Agreement, uh-huh. to demonize the ayah, to de- in the same way that the Langert murders were blamed first upon the IRA, and then me, their murder, MI5's murder of 29 people in Oma, was blamed upon the IRA. It was an IRA bomb, but the the massacre was MI5 with the help of the FBI. That's right. It later emerged that they knew a bomb-laden car was headed for Oma, and they just let it happen. Well, the owner of the car, Paddy Dixon, was an agent of the Irish government. So the Irish government were involved in that crime along with MI5 and the FBI. Right. They were going to go out with one big last atrocity and then just kill any, to, totally demonize anyone having any association with the IRA and Sinn Féin for that matter. And that that basically heralded the end of, I think at that point... Of the armed resistance, yeah. Yeah, that was the end of it. It turned public opinion against it. it Absolutely, was, yeah. You know, it was a public opinion coup for them. Well, we talked with, with uh, Michael McKevitt's wife, Bobby Sands' sister, Bernadette, and they were they were under very severe threat of death at the time. They they were the, being killed by their neighbors. It was a very very serious situation. They, she had a little business there in 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 Dundalk and lost that, and um, it was a very very dire and very dangerous situation for them. But they they got away with it. A, a little aside here. Uh, while giving testimony in on Green Street in Dublin, and by the way, in the same courtroom where 200 years to the week, or to, to the month at least, Robert Emmett was framed by, or sentenced to death and beheading by Lord Norbury in that self-same room. Hmm. So we... we so it's a historic room, but another main framework, frame up is going on. And by the way, the difference between the trial of McKevitt in that courtroom and the trial of Robert Emmett in that courtroom 200 years earlier is that in a speech from the dock, Robert Emmett denounced the trial that the jury had been selected to convict him in advance. That was mm-hmm. decided in advance to that jury. But in Michael McKevitt's case, there was no jury at all. Mm. He was not allowed a jury because yeah, they, they, because the jury they might have told the truth. So they used a three a three a three uh, judge court trial. And here in Chicago, while the, when the trial was already set and Rupert had come back here, he was getting two newspaper reporters to write a book financed by Lord Black, who owned the Chicago Sun Times newspaper at the time. Uh, Lord Black had just come out of prison about a year ago after serving about five years for his right, crime. Conrad, Conrad Black. Yeah. Conrad Black, exactly. Yes. So the the uh, it was it was mentioned by at a in, at a, at an interview when they were taping him. Aren't you concerned that your background 
will not allow you to give evidence in any trial in Dublin. And Rupert replied, it will, my evidence or, ev- or any, my, t- my testimony or even any evidence won't make any difference. It was the state that selected the judges to hear the case, thereby mm-hmm. impugning them, destroying the reputation of the three judges that he knew the fix was in. Mm-hmm. And that was read into the faces of the three judges. Wow. And about a week and a half later, <laughs> about a week and a half later, those those three judges said that that he was a very credible that Rupert was a very credible <laughs> witness. <laughs> My God, they were stupid as well, and they yes. they bent but over I, backwards to 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 facilitate having this. Well, they, they call Rupert a super grass. So, oh yeah, he's a criminal, a known criminal, but he he's a good guy. He works for us. You can trust everything yes. he says. Well, it's important to mention here that during his testimony, David Rupert, on the witness stand, said that he was left alone in Ireland for a brief while, while Buckley, and was Buckley left him alone in Ireland for, for that while, while Buckley flew to the Atlanta Olympics bombing murder site. Now, mm-hmm. that was the Atlanta Olympics was in 1996. So they were in Ireland all those years, extending through 1996, at which time Buckley, the FBI, left left Ireland to go to Atlanta. And there you might know that there the FBI framed another innocent. And Buckley, having been the expert in framing people and evidence fabrication and perjury, probably led that frame up. They framed the security guard who had noticed the backpack on the ground and gotten as many people away from it as he could. One was killed, but he was a hero. But Buckley came along and framed him also. Not It hadn't gone to court, but he got the news media to make it seem, and to, to publish the lie that the security guard was the culprit. The security mm. guard later sued the, lo- the local newspapers for defamation and collected a few million dollars, but died very young, very soon thereafter. And by the way, being framed by the FBI does seem to be a life-shortening experience. That security guard died in his 30s, and one of the four of us, Tony McCormick, died at at 51. And of course, Frank O'Neill was older, but he died. So Mary and I, my wife and I, are the only survivors of the so-called Chicago Four who were framed. Me, I was framed twice. She was framed once. We were both incarcerated and barely made it out on bail. So all of that has to do with telling the truth that is not wanted. I could never understand why the FBI would be involved in the murder of 29 people. I know they managed to, to, uh, to pin it on the IRA and therefore wipe out the IRA in Ireland. But only later, only very recently, just last year, did I find what seems to be the reason. And that is, uh, there's a book published, uh, Voices from the Grave. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. By Ed Maloney. And in it, there, it's essentially a book contains two interviews. One of Brendan Hughes, so-called Darkie Hughes, from Belfast, and the other uh-huh. of David Irvine, the head of the Ulster Volunteer Force, the main terrorist mm-hmm. uh, killer group in Ireland. Mm-hmm. murdered many hundreds of people, um, all Catholics, of course. David Irvine was brought in triumph to the White House in 1994. Now, being brought in triumph to the White House in itself is a, is a statement by our government. 
And while there, he said what many loyalists tend to believe. He, he was talking to the state, U.S. State Department head of the Britain desk, and he complained to that person, the head of the Britain desk, that the United States government is in favor of the provost. And the head of the Britain desk replied, and I'm coming very close to the exact quotation, um, no, we don't. The, the IRA don't, if I, say, if I said FBI a minute ago, I meant IRA. The IRA do not have buccaneer bombers. They do not have aircraft carriers. And we, the United States government, must sew up the British exchequer so we can use the British forces in our upcoming wars. And the next sentence is by, by David Irvine, and we all looked at him. And he said, quote, Islamic fundamentalism. So the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and other places out there were all being planned as early as 1994. And by the way, wow. Irvine ends up saying, yeah, David Irvine ends up saying, that was 1994 and I was not alone. There are other witnesses by David hmm. Irvine. I, I, hate to quote, I hate to quote a serial murderer, especially one that is being championed by a government. Hmm. But I'm doing so in this case. That's amazing, uh, but it actually fits very well with, uh, with what we've what we've thought before. <clears throat> is that <clears throat> you know um, in the early nineties, the the U.S. government, the U.S. intelligence agencies basically started to develop the Muslim terrorism or Islamic terror threat, etc. Uh, you know, in, in preparation for for a well a long planned invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, and and it's but it's very interesting because it's just it, it makes sense as well. But I hadn't heard it before what you've just said, which is that um, that the peace process in Ireland, which occurred in the in the mid nineties, and then eventually you know it became real uh, uh, um, towards the end of the nineties, uh, you know, and just before uh, the, the the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that they did that specifically, that the U.S. government was specifically uh, was pushing that, the FBI was pushing that uh, that peace process in Northern Ireland, like you said, to free up British military resources and monetary resources to engage in the war on terror, quote-unquote. Yes, the, 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 all of it is a criminal war. It's, a, it's an expansion of the U.S.-U.K.-Israeli empire, and it is shocking. So the and, only and reason there's been a process, the only reason there's been a peace process in Ireland potentially is because they had these plans for a world war, basically a war on terror, a never-ending yes. war on terror. Wow. Yes, that's that. That is the case, and the signing over of the disputed six counties to the British government is the greatest transfer of national territory in 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 history. Uh, without. Uh, except in cases of, of catastrophic military defeat. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the IRA were not militarily defeated. They were betrayed from within, but they were not militarily defeated. And, and, uh, and you wonder, why would the Irish government do this? So we've noticed here that the Irish government has been on the British side of every single issue that has involved Irish America. The Birmingham Six... We were told by the by the Irish Consul General, "Oh, terrorism, terrorism! No, no, no! Don't don't talk about Birmingham. Oh, terrorism!" So dissuaded us. We didn't know enough about it. We had heard there was an injustice, but we didn't know enough about it, so we backed off. Same thing with the Guildford Four. 
Then, uh, once the Irish were first allowed to vote, all the public, general suffrage in the North, where they were allowed to vote in the six counties, and that the British government responded by getting employers to not hire Catholics, which means Irish and indigenous Irish people. Mm-hmm. Um, Irish America responded by requiring at least the U.S. companies operating there not participate in that job denial program. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, 25 U.S. companies employed 11% of the working population of the six counties. So we, we, New York started, I think, Boston, we, uh, Massachusetts. We followed, so we were the fourth, Illinois was the fourth state to get it passed. It took about, uh, just about two years to complete here. It required 50,000, 60,000 signed letters and all directed to the different politicians where they were. And then we, we did the same thing for in the, uh, when it became a federal issue. Right. But at all that time, the, well, let me say, state representative, Illinois state representative John McNamara described the situation as betrayal from the most unexpected quarter of all. And that was the Irish Consul General showing up in our state capital to speak against enactment. When, 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 well, well, Irish Illinois to a person was entirely in favor of enactment. The Irish Consul General stood with the British Consul General in opposition to enactment. They did the same. They worked harder at stopping the Illinois, the, sorry, the Chicago City Council uh, vote on it as on a separate municipal uh, ordinance situation. We have a budget here. The Chicago City government has a budget of seven or eight billion dollars a year, and they wanted to make sure that corporations involved in denying of jobs to Catholics of the North do not participate as bidders on those contracts. So right. we, that was important. So we got it enacted here in Chicago. But the Irish Council was involved in all overtly sabotage, working with saboteurs, everything to stop it. We defeated them. That's amazing. And, uh, just to just to just to explain exactly what you're talking about here, you've been in, kind of instrumental in in the past in pushing through legislation in the state of Illinois, but this has happened in other states that would require U.S. Uh, corporations uh, that have bases or uh, operations in Northern Ireland to not engage in discrimination, kind of like an apartheid South Africa. Essentially, it was demanding that U.S. corporations in Northern Ireland do not engage in a, a racial uh, religious discrimination against Catholics, for example, and the Irish government, this is a Republican, supposedly Republic of Ireland government, was fighting against that. They were actually lobbying for discrimination against what was effectively their own citizens in the, in the North of Ireland. That is correct. It's, it stuns, it boggles the mind, but that is the reality. They cannot deny it. We have, we have copies of the transcripts. No and one they were doing ever, that at the no behest... One, they were doing it at the behest of the British government, obviously, and that just makes uh, it clear that the, the, the Irish government has, like you've been saying, has always been just basically a quizzling of, uh, of the British. Yes, we didn't. It, it only became clear to us slowly when, without exception, they were working against us and, and in favor. And when, when these, all these crimes are being perpetrated against us, and I'm an Irish citizen as well as U.S., uh, the Irish government was very much on the side of the FBI against us. Mm-hmm. And so... In other words, they were they were operating in conjunction with criminals against people who were who were who were doing the right thing. We were, we were doing what all good citizens should be doing everywhere. Many people don't have the time. When I was when I was when I was working forty fifty hours a week, I didn't have time. 
after things slowed down they, and I retired, we had we had time and we went to work. We did. We it was a, it was something that people of conscience must do. And, mm-hmm. and the Irish government was with the was with the criminals, with the British government all the way through. They 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 and they framed Michael McEvitt using the same, using by the way the self same evidence fabrication and perjury that we defeated here in federal court in Chicago was successful against Michael McEvitt in, mm-hmm. a, in a Dublin uh, courtroom. Maybe just to uh, to. Because I'm aware that some of our listeners may not understand the kind of the context of uh, you know of the of the situation that we're talking about, or the uh, in terms of you know like, uh, what goes on in America in terms of support for uh, what has gone on in the U.S. in terms of support for um, the IRA and Irish Republicanism. Um, you were a member of Friends of Irish Freedom, which is one such group which basically supports. Are supported the struggle of the Irish people in the north of Ireland and elsewhere for uh, you know for freedom for for a united Ireland and that was a direct threat that that, that kind of a, uh, a process and people involved in that in the U.S. were seen by the British as terrorists because obviously they labelled the IRA as a terrorist organisation when in fact they were simply. Uh, uh, there were effectively a guerrilla army of indigenous people fighting against occupation, state foreign state occupation of their country. So yes. you I mean, wonder wh- how did the British manage to call them terrorists when the body count is there for anyone? The homicide records are there, available for anyone to see, which contradict mm. which contradict that statement. Right. Anne Cadwallader, you might be familiar with her book Lethal Allies, just written Absolutely. last year it's or the year book, before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, 120, 120 random Catholics were murdered by a single gang named the Glen Ann Gang, mm-hmm. named, uh, named Glen, Ann, Glen Ann because that is the townland wherein an RUC officer has his farm. It's, and the Dublin Monaghan bombings, bomb cars, were the bombs were primed in the RUC's farmhouse in Glen Ann. Mm-hmm. So all of this is available, and how can... <clears throat> Why would the how, why would the people of Ireland allow their own patriots to be locked up in Port Leash, mm-hmm. yeah. and and and, all, and also and also McGabbery? Why mm-hmm. how can this be? Yeah. Um, so, what was I going to say? I think the answer to that question is there's been they've been so heavily brainwashed. I mean, the the the, the topic we started with this show, they don't know their history. Mm-hmm. They don't understand okay. that they never really got freedom. They got a f- simulation of it in 1920, and yeah. they've been but under it, occupation ever since. It, it must be said here that while the Irish were freed of their English landlords by about 1910, and certainly by 1920 they were essentially all gone, the, the rest of that establishment were left in place. The banks remained ascendancy, the insurance companies, the stock brokerages, the advertising agencies, the news media. They were all left in the hands of their enemies. Right, and they yeah, exactly. Be, they, they seem to they seem be, continue to be in the hands of their enemies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I mean, it's always been clear to me looking at Irish history that uh, the long, horrible involvement... <laughs> Uh, an occupation of Ireland by the British, you know, you can say it's 800 years. I mean, you don't, 
you don't you can't be occupied by a foreign power for that long without really the full infrastructure and the essentials of the infrastructure of that country being infiltrated by that foreign state. I mean, it, it, it would be by 19, you know, even by 1920, 1922, it was, it would have been almost impossible for any new Irish government or the Irish people to get rid of 700 years of British influence. You know, it was so woven into the fabric of, of, of this, of the state that I can't imagine how they would ever have gotten rid of it, you know. Well, if they, you're bringing, you're opening up something that's got to be addressed, and that is what we have in, in Dublin, what, is a, what the Irish people have is a royal doll. Mm-hmm. That government, that, the current government is the successor to one that was set up in 1922-3 by King George V. That mm-hmm. is his royal doll that is operating. And this has only become clear to me recently. The, the government of Ireland, of, by, and for the people, was set up on, on Ireland's Independence Day. And Ireland's Independence Day is January 21, 1990, starting in 1919. That government was formed, Dáilearn, was, was formed as a result of the island-wide election of 1918. Mm-hmm. That was a landslide for the Irish people, for Sinn Féin. Based upon that election, the winners formed the government. The British government promptly declared the elected government of Ireland an illegal assembly and set about assassinating and imprisoning that government. Right, because it was democratic. Exactly. A few years later, they imposed another doyle on Ireland, on Ireland, and that is the royal doyle. And what Ireland, it seems to me that anyone with any knowledge these days ought to be referring to the government of Ireland, the current government, as the royal doyle, because it is the royal mm-hmm. doyle. And that, that, helps, that helps to get people to understand the activities. Uh, and it might not be too noticeable in Ireland, though it should be, with the with the allowing the banksters to go in and loot the country and then force their all of their losses onto the Irish people, taxpayers, mm-hmm. and the water charge and everything. all of that, it should be even clear to people in Ireland. But it, for in foreign areas, what the Irish consul generals have been doing are so blatantly treasonous to their own country that mm-hmm. it's quite clear here. Except it is clear here to everyone, except those who have a personal a personal interest in keeping the lie going. And I'm yeah. afraid we have a little bit of that in this country also. The people around, the people associated with the with the Consul General of Ireland, with the Irish Consul Consulate, uh, who remain closely connected, they're all uh, on the make. They're all looking for for number one. Yeah, sadly, I think that's the absolute truth of the matter. Um, so, so, so the Irish Republican Brotherhood, had, I, I've only noticed them in the last year or two, and. Look at their site, the Irish Republican Brotherhood's website, and that of Billy Maguire, one of its chief spokespersons. Um, they're doing wonderful work in advancing the interests of the people of Ireland by calling for a restoration of, of the, an Irish doll, Aaron. It, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is absolutely reasonable. And you wonder how how can people not hear of this and not act immediately? In the la- starting last January twenty first, they were not allowed to have their celebration in the Mansion House 
I think it was a mansion house in Dublin. They were uh-huh. stopped at the door. So, but the, because the reason the people of Ireland don't know about it, the news media do not want them to know about it because the news media remain, including including uh, Radio Aaron, RTE, remain mm-hmm. in essentially Anglo hands, the ascendancy hands. Yeah, that's the sad truth of the matter, and it explains a lot of what has gone on in Ireland over the past well, over the past. But the Irish Republican Brotherhood, I do believe, have the the peaceful, reasonable, uh, intelligent re- response to the current situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's okay now, I'd like to go, go about this, the uh, what the the starvation of Ireland, our main our main purpose here. Yeah, let's go back to that because let me just frame that again. Um, so. You know, what you've just recounted about your harassment at the hands of the FBI and MI5 was because of your support, you and other people in the U.S., uh, during the period of the so-called Troubles, uh, your support for Irish, uh, Irish Ireland, the Irish fight for freedom in, in the north of Ireland, uh, and your support for the IRA and your support for republicanism in general. And also, as part of that, you were obviously investigating, uh, you had, started on this, this path investigation of, of the, the so-called famine. And I suppose from the point of view of the, the British, the, those two things were the same. If you, you, know, you support the Irish independence then, uh, from Britain, uh, well, you know, digging up history and telling the truth of history uh, about you know, British involvement in Ireland goes back, uh, you know, the, per- the perfidy goes back a long way. Yes. In fact, there were, it, it has been a nonstop genocide with three peaks of genocide, one under Queen Elizabeth, one under Cromwell, and one under Victoria. And what's going on in the North today is a, is a modified form of genocide. But to have, to have uh, withheld jobs, to have withheld livelihoods from the indigenous people is a shocking act. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, at, the, at the time of the, of the invasion, the population of Ireland was about two-thirds of that of the neighboring, neighboring island. And now what it is? Is one-tenth of it or so? Yeah, less. Less, less, seven or eight percent of it, yes. So, that, so there has been a, a successful genocide carried on all these centuries. And uh, it is time for the people of... They, the, the, the strange thing about it is that I think that the people were more knowledgeable a hundred years ago than they are in Ireland than they are today. Yeah, because they have, slow. They haven't, yes. And and the Catholic Church, I'm very sorry to say, uh, there was a few there are a few heroes like Father Michal O'Flanagan, but he was gagged by his church for telling the truth. He was sent he right. was sent into remote parishes in the the back of beyond, and was was ordered was gagged by his own church. You mentioned you mentioned um, you know it goes back to the Elizabethan era. Uh, you know the British obviously Ireland is right is off. You know, is, is an island, a separate island off the coast of of Britain, and the, the British had a long uh, have had for a long time since maybe 1200 or so, their interest in in Ireland as a as a colony essentially began. Uh, but there was, and obviously the Irish resisted that as any indigenous people do. Uh, they resist uh, a kind of abuse and colonization and enslavement, effectively, because the British have throughout history, throughout their history, have been extremely good at uh, enslaving and abusing indigenous people for their own benefit. So Ireland was no different. So the Irish people resisted that uh, uh, as, as, as you would expect any normal people to. 
Um, and the British developed different strategies uh, and eventually, and, and they had a lot of scope to really get their fingers into Ireland because it was so close. I mean, it may be slightly different in other far-flung parts of the empire, but Ireland really got the brunt of it because um, because it was so close. And in doing a bit of research on this myself on the famine, uh, there was a letter uh, that, I, that I saw quoted uh, in a book it was from 1601, and it was a letter from the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Sir Arthur Chichester, to Lord I, Burley. Yes. Who, 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 and who, I know who what you're going queen, to say. He's calling for famine. Right, who's Queen Elizabeth's chief advisor. And he said, I yes. have often said and written, it is famine which must consume them, the Irish. Our swords and other endeavors work not that speedy effect which is expected for their overflow. So he's basically saying, we need to starve these people to death because killing them with swords and stuff and fighting them isn't doing uh, the, the job fast enough. And this was in 1601, 250 yes. years before the supposed yes. time. A little comment upon the the destruction under you know, of those years. Uh, a little over a year ago, I was at a local book sales, and there was I picked up the oldest book I believe in the whole show, and it's the title of the book is "Discovery of the Tomb of Olam Fola, Ireland's Famous Monarch and Lawmaker, Upwards of Three Thousand Years Ago" by Eugene Alfred Conwell, M.R.I.A. M.A.I.F.R. Historical Society, etc., and Inspector of, Ir- of Irish Schools, printed in 1873. In the preface to it, he mentions that he refers to the annals of the four masters to a certain extent. And in it, he said that one of them survived uh, and moved to moved to Ballycroy County, Mayo, where he died. Oh, where he died in in 1660-something. He died there, leaving his treasure, his only treasure, his books, to one of his sons. Uh, this was, this was his name was Kokogri O'Cleary, mm-hmm. the second given name of Peregrine. He was one of three brothers, and in addition to a Mulconnery, who sat down in the convent of Donegal in 1632, and until 1636 they wrote the entire history of Ireland. They sat down to do that, faced with what they believed to be an entire wipeout of the Irish nation, its people, its customs, everything. There'd be nothing left of Ireland. And they wanted to leave a record of, of what used to be Ireland behind. That book was later called, or books were later called, The Annals of the Four Masters. Mm-hmm. So I happen to have the Irish telephone books here of, of 2000 here. And so I uh, looked through them for an O'Cleary in Ballycroy, there are no O'Clearys anywhere in Mayo, but there are Clearys. And so I dialed, the first dial was Martin Joseph Cleary in Ballycroy. And I explained to him about what I found in this book and, and about his relative. And it's important to say here that by the time they finished the book in, in 1636, and then he died in the, in the 1660s, that it was somewhere in between then when he fled to Ballycroy. But... The, in the intervening period, Cromwell was there, 1649-52. And mm. so he, he fled Cromwell at the time. And so in Ballycroy, so I, call, I said, here's this man, and he uh, moved to Ballycroy. Are you, by any chance, a relation, a descendant? He said, no, we don't know. He said, we've often heard we might be, but there's no proof. I said, no, no, no historian or school teacher, no one else has ever inquired of you. He said, no, never. He said, we don't know. Well, I said, this just for your information. This man's name was Kokogri, 
and his second name, a given name, was um, uh, Peregrine. Well, he said, I have a cousin, Peregrine, who left here shortly after the Second World War and moved, went over overseas. Well, I said, I said to him, Martin Joseph, you have just established that you and all your cousins in Ballycroy are descendants of one of the four masters. And that, that, that's the reality. I put into my column in the Irish, that I write in the Irish American News. It was delight to know that one of the four had survived mm-hmm. and, that they had, wow. and that they had sat down to write this, the history of Ireland lest it, it be entirely wiped out by the British. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we, we've established that <clears throat> the British were, had, had an intent that, uh, as far back as, as 1600 to starve the Irish. Uh, and, and in this ensuing couple of hundred years, um, there were various famines uh, along the way. And I think that was part of the, um, part of the process of, of, of the colonization of Ireland, where the, a lot of the foodstuffs were being taken out of the country and, and, and landlords, British landlords were coming in, English landlords were coming in and, and you know, stealing all of the land and making peasants of the people. But it wasn't until uh, this so-called famine period that everyone knows about in, 18, in around 1845 that the British really seemed to uh, go at it with a, with a vengeance. Yes. The, the English landlord, uh, Lord Ashbrook, who's, who, who evicted my great-grandfather and his family from, from Ballykeely, Doro County Leash. His great grandson lives in a in his castle in Arley Hall, Cheshire, England today. So the notion that these, by the way, the, the notion that these are were Irish landlords is is really comical. Oh, it is really yeah. a laugh. Uh, though though a few were allowed during the Elizabethan period and and before, only four families in Ireland or clans were allowed uh, personal, how do you call it, legal personhood. Mm-hmm. The entire Irish nation were stripped of legal personhood. They were murderable at will by any English person, and it did not involve the law because, in fact, murder requires that the, that the, that the victim be human, and mm-hmm. the Irish were not legally humans at the time for, for a couple of hundred years in their own country. So that's what they were faced with. So, so anyway, yeah. back to the book, um, or in fact, back to the, the fact of the matter, the, it went on and, and people, there, there are mass graves all over Ireland. You might know where there are some yourselves, do you? Mm-hmm. Not really, actually, because that in itself has also been downplayed massively by the, by the Irish government. Uh, that's true. That is true. In fact, in the years I was over there, we lived out what is called the Workhouse Road out of Castlery, and I walked by twice a day and did not know that there are tens of thousands of people buried there. Mm-hmm. Later, uh, in going back and having learned about it, and I only learned about it in the public record office in Kew outside London, that's where I learned the facts of the matter, and they're there available mm-hmm. to everyone. Uh, I tried to get my old classmates in Castlery to put up a memorial over one of the workhouse mass graves. And um, there was initial great interest and enthusiasm, but in a very short time, that became very negative, and they're, they're under pressure from others, and I don't know who those others are. They must be politicians. Mm-hmm. But my, my closest buddy and classmate had become an excavation contractor in the meantime, 
and he was the excavation contractor for a development of houses atop the mass graves in, of the workhouse in Castle And he told me, but he semi-whispered whispered to me, didn't want people uh, hearing, that when he was excavating, that the, the little he was excavating the baby's uh, graveyard. And he said they were all jammed together, all piled in on top of one another. And he said, we, we dug them up and moved them away and dumped the, dumped the, the soil somewhere else. No, no. And, but the word got out. Maybe he sp- helped to spread the word. I don't know. The word, the scandal grew, and the, develop, and the development reduced the number of houses so that there are three sort of small football fields on the development that won't be built upon, where the bodies were too thick to continue removing. But he, he, it's, he still, I felt, was haunted by what he saw of the little toddlers' bodies all jammed in together, piled in on top of one another, all jammed together, that he dug up with a backhoe. Amazing. Chris, just talk to us about the figures, uh, because we mentioned at the beginning of the show the official figures is one million dead and one million fled from Ireland, but you have uncovered uh, something else as far as the actual yes. death toll. Yes. Uh, in fact, the the, I, I, the the book I wrote is is my writing, and the evidence all comes from official records. But the uh, population loss, the murder toll, was written by an Irishman living in England who is a, a census specialist. He has done a fine job. Uh, about five million people were murdered, very very close to it, uh, and that was done by taking the the official census of 1841 and then and then applying to it the correction factor created by a, a captain win who made a count himself and found that the official count was off by more than one third so it's been corrected by a specialist and it's a, about five million and uh and it must be said that Cecil Woodham Smith had also found the same thing and referred to the same correction, but along with the rest of her bearing her truths by the rest of her 400 and some pages in her book, having mentioned the truth about the recount, the corrective recount of the population of Ireland, she then used the original, the, the official, the, the provenly false, the proven false numbers to do her calculation. And she came up with two and a half million. Mm-hmm. But she only did that. She only did that. She only kept that number that low by using the uncorrected figures. And the uncorrected figures are in my book and they're available to anyone. It's all spelled out there. Anyone can do their own mm-hmm. checking. Yeah, you, so, you mentioned a figure of 12 million uh, in the yeah. census, in the earliest census. Uh, actually, there, there was never was at no. That's what the corrected census would be: twelve seven or twelve eight, twelve million eight seven eight hundred thousand. Not not far off thirteen million, and um, and that, that's that is anyone is anyone is invited to review the figures, go over the go over the records themselves, and I must say it, it is very comprehensive. This book is comprehensive. It um, so. One can one one must accept that five million and perhaps more. The 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 author of that that particular chapter ends up saying, "Who can say that there weren't six million murdered?" And um, but mind you, I don't go with that very much. Not being able to prove something is not proof mm-hmm. that it exists. Mm-hmm, but what sure. the book does, 
what the book does is uh, over half the book is comprised of exhibits, and the exhibits are are placed there as evidence of a crime in the legal sense, as evidence of crime, and it shows by year and by atrocity and by enactment, legal enactment, the 845-year duration of Britain's crimes in Ireland. And it shows that the Holocaust was a series, of the third of a series of peaks of genocide, first under Lisbon, the second under Cromwell. And by the way, the use of the word Holocaust is not merely my opinion or my, my whim. I'm, I'm using it due to historical precedence scholars and anyone who, who wants to provide the record must refer to earlier records. And the earlier record is that Holocaust was used while it was ongoing in 1847. And it was used by Michael Davitt, one of the leaders in those who were trying to rectify the situation. He used it in his book, The Fall of Feudalism in Ireland, and so did many other writers, and I named them in in my book. So, what the book does, it demolishes the lie of potato famine by proving the existence of vast amounts of non-potato foods. The potato crops failed everywhere, but people died only in Ireland. Exhibit D in the book is, quote, the table of non-potato crop processors extant prior to the Holocaust by county, and then later by, by townland. Um, the evidence of non-potato crops is comprised of Ireland's grain kills and mills, flour mills, tuck mills, breweries, distilleries, threshers, livestock pounds, woolen mills, and windmills. They show the pages 340 to 374 of my book shows the locations in Ireland of each of these by county and then by townland. And my wife and I extracted them using using um, magnifying glasses from the Ordnance Survey maps of Ireland, 1830-1845. And anyone who might say, well, that was a few years prior to the Holocaust, uh, in the grain mills that are shown on that map, 1830-1845, in North County Galway, where we first moved in 1946, I worked in one of them, where my uncle was was drying his grow, uh, grain in the local mill, his oats, and across the street from the mill, and he, he ground it in the, in the mill across the road. And all of the mills shown on the Ordnance Survey maps were still operating in 1946. And so that's factual. Then, so the potato part of it is gone by showing the existence of all the processing mills, etc., of all the other kinds of food in Ireland. Then regarding famine, it demolishes the famine lie by proving the massive export of Irish foods. Exhibit B is a series of the London Times reports of weekly landings of Irish food in England. And so I used a number of those. I didn't, I didn't take up too much of the book with those landings because that evidence is so abundantly available that I only used four or five examples of it, of, of okay. newspaper, new, newspaper clippings. And then it also demolishes, the, my book also demolishes the quote famine unquote lie by proving the at gunpoint food removal. Exhibit A, the colored map, shows which British regiment starved which Irish district and names the location of some 170 of the mass graves they filled. Exhibit C names the immediate perpetrators of the Holocaust. Exhibit C1, the British Army regiments that removed the food and their provenances. 
And, and my source, by the way, for that is a disposition of the Army record from the British National Archives. It was at the time they were called the, the National Public Record, uh, Public Record Office. Exhibit 3 shows the landlord's militia regiments. The rest of the C exhibits quantify the other armed food removers, the constabulary, marines, warships, revenue police, coast guards, and their stations, to exhibit C6, the total number of armed British enforcers of the food removal. Exhibit 8 is a typical cess seizure by Army regiments, and C9 is a typical cess seizures by Army. And the source of both of those are the World, World uh, the War Office records and parliamentary papers. Cess, by the way, is a word that's gone out of use, except when I lived in Ireland, bad cess to you. And yeah. it says... It says it's a tax that was imposed usually by the army, uh, and it started as as an upkeep of its own army. The people being policed or being 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 uh, overridden were the ones who were forced to pay for the army that was oppressing them. Mm-hmm. So then, having yes. demolished the quote potato unquote uh, and quote famine unquote lies, the book refutes the new lie that it quote it was the rich Irish starving the poor Irish unquote, and this lie is of recent vintage. The famine writers adopted it once they could no longer deny the food exports amid starvation. So evidence that the landlords were English, not Irish, is Exhibit E, which provides their non-Irish family names, their English titles, their English clubs, English addresses, English schools, their British Army rankings, etc., also the fact that mostly between 1900 and 1910, the British government repatriated them to England, leaving but a few remaining in Ireland on vastly reduced estates, such as the Duke of Devonshire in Lismore and the, and the heir of once Lord Brown in Westport. My great-grandfather Fodian family were evicted from their Ballykeely, Doro County Leash Land, in 1836 by Lord Ashbrook. Uh, Henry Flower was his actual name. My grandfather, Fody, was born on July 16, 1839, in a scalp, an emergency shelter in the shadow of that Lord's gallows near Duro. And the current Lord Ashbrook, Michael L. W. Flower, lives on the Arley Hall estate in che- on his Arley Hall estate in Cheshire, England. The vast sizes of their estates are shown on Exhibit Four. They list all of Ireland's 3,000-plus acre landlords, and the source of that information is the great landowners of Great Britain and Ireland, 1878. The book also names the famine writers, so-called famine writers. It marginalizes by by focusing upon and refuting their fabrications. Uh, The relatively admirable, admirable and least deceptive of them all, Cecil Woodham Smith. So I, I both uh, show all of the good work that Cecil Woodham Smith did in her uh, so-called Great Hunger book, and also point out where she covered up her own uh, statements of truth. It's very sad what, what was done there. And that part is Chapter 11, the cover-up artists who kept the Holocaust, quote, perfect, unquote. So that's mm-hmm. the background of the, of the, of the uh, precis of the book itself. In Irish America, it's important to end the famine falsehood because it has always worked against the education of Irish-American children. There's still an element of the old stupid Irish around. It's diminishing. 
but it's still there to a certain extent. And everyone who uses the word famine is promoting that notion of Irish stupidity. If they won't, if people won't abandon the false word of famine in the interest of truth itself and to stop bearing false witness against the murdered five million, they should do it, at least in Irish America, they should do it in order to give their children an even shot at, at, at academic qualification, at academic admissions to good schools. Hmm. Yeah, it's, Chris, the stuff, the work that you've done is, uh, as usual, when someone does the work to, to, to expose the truth of, of history in terms of what these supposed great powers have done in history, it's just absolutely, it's shocking, you know, I mean, the level of brutality and cynicism and, well, I can only call it pure evil of, of the British yeah. in Ireland is just, I mean, that one example you gave of where the people were being, who, who were being starved, where there were hundreds of tons of food, uh, animals, livestock, uh, grain being shipped out of the country over the, the, the period of these years uh, by British, under British military guard and the local people who were being starved in this way were being forced to pay a tax to host the military that was taking the food away is just almost beyond belief, you know? Yeah. And the other, and when they example, couldn't pay, they were kicked out of their homes. Yeah, and when they couldn't pay, they kick, kicked out of their homes. And the other example of that uh, that I got from your website as well is that when people were dispossessed, when they, when they, had their, when they were thrown out of their homes because uh, they couldn't pay their rent to their landlord who had stolen the land from them, uh, and they were, you know, destitute, essentially, on the street. Uh, there was, at that time, there was a law passed as well by the British that anybody out after dark could be shot on sight. Anybody not in their house would be shot on sight. Yeah. So you kick someone out of their house, burn their house down, put them on the street with their children, and then pass a law that says, if you're on the street without a house, not in your home, we're going to shoot you. I mean, that... Well, mind you, I'm, I'm not certain about the shooting, but they certainly... Could could convict them of that and, yeah. and send 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 them either into uh, transportation to the colonies right. as, a, as a slave, or be or be sent to a workhouse where they were put to at hard labor, but or 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 execution. You're right; they could be executed, but not. I must say, I didn't think shot at sight, but they were the law, and therefore they were free to do whatever they wanted. And yeah. and some of them, it's hard to believe, but some of them walked around. They're one of their taller, stronger members of the of the force would walk around. And his job would be to be to be the hangman. They carried around tripods with them to to hang people from. But here's a man who would put a rope around someone's neck, put it over his shoulder, and then bend forward, um, strangling them over his back. This, this is this is shocking stuff. Shocking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it went on. It went on before the Reformation. By the way, it cannot mm. all be blamed upon the Reformation. Right. There's a quote. I mean, just some of the quotes um, from. English officials at the time are very indicative of, of the type of people that we're talking about. I mean, you quote one, uh, Queen Victoria's economist, Nassau Sr., he expressed his fear that existing policies will not kill more than one million Irish in 1848, and that will scarcely be enough to do much good. One yeah, million go. dead will not be scarcely enough. To do much good, yes. Yeah. So they... So they, they they wiped out the the British government wiped out poverty in Ireland by murdering the poor, and they were right. poor because they were they had been robbed of their land. By the it's way, very, today, Ed, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Ed, I was going to say that's speak, a very I was going to say that's a very psychopathic kind of view of a problem. 
solution, you know. I mean, there's all these poor people. Well, let's just kill them, and then you won't have poor people anymore. No poverty. Yes, yes. Neat. Amazing. There's a... To show you where we stand today, there's a a priest who founded a a parish in Florida, in Venice, Florida, on on the West Coast, who, after reading my book and seeing my material, decided that he would like to put up a memorial, a monument, over the mass grave nearest Holocaust mass grave, nearest to his mother's birthplace in northwest Mayo. So he contacted his cousins, with whom he has visited a few times over there, and he contacted the local monument maker, and he got no reply, and then wrote again, and and this went on for a couple of years. Uh, but then finally, he heard back from his cousin that the parish priest has told him, all right, go ahead if you want to do it, but carve famine into that monument. Do not carve Holocaust or genocide. Now, that's from the parish priest. And, why? But however, What's his problem? Yeah, why is right? Why is right? But mm. And also, why is the monument maker going along with this? Mm. So, so there you have it, and that's in, a, in one of the major towns in northwest Mayo. So the priest here is, is sort of stuck, um, and, and so far he has not been able to move forward. He has given them the wording for the monument. I've suggested that he send it to me, that I can maybe help in that regard. You see, I don't use murder on the web, on the memorials that my wife and I put up. I don't use the word murder. I just use the word, I name the regiments and their deeds. I name the regiments mm-hmm. who, who stripped the, that particular area and, and what they and what they did, they moved the food, all the livestock and grains, etc., out of that area. For me, that's adequate. And to make an accusation or to use adjectives, um, it merely gilds the lily and is not mm-hmm. even important, in my opinion. It's not necessary. It's sufficient. It's systematic right. extermination. Do any of those uh, regiments still exist, Chris? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Of course. Why not? A lot of them have let's, had go on. Cha- let's, let's go and put up some... Uh, some signs at their at their home bases in, in in England, you know, a little bit of history outside their bases. Yes, 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 yes. They they're they're all. And uh, one came one uh, regiment came from America. At least its recruitment ground was America. They would be loyalists in America, which mm. is kind of sad to think because they were certainly persona non grata in the United States at the same time. Yeah, I can imagine. What kind of what kind of mentality you'd have to have to be a a loyalist, a British loyalist in the U.S. You so know? soon after the War of Independence. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, by the way, right, even as we speak, the the current pyre, P-Y-R-E, unburnt firing for the July 12th is already in Durvak in northern Antrim, and it has many signs. It has big Irish tricolor flags on it with K-A-T on them, kill all tigers. Last year in the same location, and these are all going to be burned, by the way, last year at the same location, they had the same K-A-T, kill all tigers, and they had um, Porig McShane, dead man, at the very top on on an Irish tricolor, Porig McShane, dead man. He's, a, he's an elected councillor in that district of North County Antrim. And some months ago, 
in his absence, and he's got he's got little children. His house was burned to the ground. So the effort to harm him, if not kill him, murder him, is ongoing today as we speak. While all of this is going on, the ex-Irish president, Mary McAleese, just visited the six counties during the week where she participated in the opening of an orange museum. Mm-hmm. And she's calling, for, she's calling for a unity of the Irish and the loyalists. And you wonder, does she not know about the torture that's ongoing in McGabry today? Does she not yeah. know about the about the the uncharged arrest and imprisonments? How what is on her mind? Meanwhile, yeah. in this country, and by the way, the the Orangemen have taken to flying the the stars and bars, the Confederate flag right. of the, yeah. and and they're doing that at a time when the stars and bars are being made uh, illegal in the United States. Though it'll take mm-hmm. it'll take a little bit of doing. There's plenty of bigots here yet. Uh, mm-hmm. anti-black, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish uh, to this day. But while while they're being shamed here, while the KKK and the White Citizens Councils are being shamed in the United States, the ex-president of Ireland is suggesting that there be a reconciliation with their cousins, both in terms of blood and f- philosophy uh, ideology, in the North. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How 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 can that be? I don't. What's, what's going I, on? I may I may be a bit of an extremist, you know, but uh, the extent of the crimes against the Irish Catholic people by the British and their their agents, which include the Orange Men and the Protestants in Northern Ireland, over the past several hundred years, are far too great for anybody at this point to be talking about. Let's all just move on because there can be no peace in any country without un- truth. without without justice. And there can't be any justice without truth. Yes. The full truth of the situation exactly. has to be exposed. So when you have people like the former presidents of Ireland and other big wigs, you know, with these kind of uh, platitudes and paramor- sanctimonious. sanctimonious, paramoralistic kind of uh, yeah. uh, let's all be friends, I mean, those people should just be run out of town for the more or less quizlings that they are. They're simply, I mean, I don't, I, I can't even listen to them. Yeah, well, well, then you're on. The, you're, in my opinion, your forces for great good. May may you have power, and may you uh, may you have um, uh, widespread widespread uh, of your of your show. Uh, that's yeah. How long how long have you have you been doing this? We're doing this for a couple of years now, but we have a website that's attached to that's been around for about ten years. Um, so yeah, we've been we've been interviewing. You know, we have a we we. We do stuff uh, on a broad range of topics, <clears throat> all of it <clears throat> focused on the truth about what's going on. I mean, you mentioned Anne Cadwallader earlier on in her, her book, uh, Collusion. We're hoping that we're going to interview her in a couple of weeks' time. We hope she's on a speaking tour of Australia, but we're going to get her on and sh- she'll give us the the kind of sordid details, you know, which is a lot of people like to turn their face away from that kind of thing, but... Uh, People can't, I mean, turning your face away from from the reality of what the, the powers that be in this world do to people, do to ordinary people, isn't going to help anybody. It's not going to help to stop them doing that. You well, know? So those... either, either they're for terrorism or they're, they're against it. And if, right. they're going to be cover, if they're going to be covering up her work, they're for terrorism. They're for murder, exactly. mass murder. Yeah. She, names, she names 120 Catholics who were murdered by the British. And by, by Catholic, we really mean nationalists. They were not involved in any way with politics 
or they no. weren't even necessarily Republicans. They were killed, murdered, because they were getting along pretty well. And that does right. not suit those who murdered them. Well, and, and, and 120, and, and that was just one gang alone. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting, uh, another piece of information I came across in, in researching the so-called Troubles <clears throat> in the early 70s, or in the very late 19, basically at the very beginning of the, of the conflict, um, there was the original IRA, uh, and, and at that time there, was, there were loyalist uh, paramilitary groups kind of uh, who, had, who were the, forming themselves to, um, to, to protect their people. They were... They were f- Afraid of you know the propaganda, they were falling victim to the propaganda of the IRA coming to kill all the Protestants, etc. And at that point, there was a, there was a, a dialogue that was opened up between these loyalist Protestant uh, organizations and the original members of the original IRA. Uh, and they started. They basically the two groups realized that they had common interest in terms of because you know although the, while the Catholics were brutally uh, abused and discriminated against uh, they the, the Protestant working class people also were having a kind of a hard time albeit Indeed. much less but they the, those two groups Protestant Catholic who would go on to be supposed arch enemies um, they, they there was a, a dialogue open between them between the original IRA and one of these loyalist groups and once that had gone a little bit down the road and they, were, they started to realize that they had common cause effectively against British rule in Northern Ireland, uh, the leaders of, that, uh, of those loyalist organizations who were, who were engaging in uh, had opened lines of communication, they were killed by the British. Now that to me said that the British had a very clear agenda. There would be no, uh, you know, no collaboration, no, no basically uniting of the people of Northern Ireland. They, at that point in time, had it very clear that they were going to have civil war, quote-unquote, and um, this wasn't going to be a, a situation of British occupation of Northern Ireland. That can't be the problem. The problem has to be sectarian conflict, and they were determined yeah. at that time to create that sectarian conflict, and they did for the next 30 years. Yes. The British well, deliberately incited it. That that is an echo of what was of what happened shortly after the American Revolution, when when the Presbyterians in the North, who were still being discriminated against by the by the the, the government and the government church, the so-called Church of Ireland, the Anglican Church, they as they they were they were the dissidents of the time, so they they led one, one of the risings in 1798. And mm-hmm. it was, and and they were all essentially wiped out, and there were a few heroes among them. The Shears, not in the south. Um, the names escape me now, um, but they they led it there. And but that particular rising, the one in, in County Down and Antrim, has been written out of history. It no longer suits the power the power uh, system mm-hmm. because it was it was truth based, and they even changed their names from militia to volunteers. Uh-huh. In, in emulation of the volunteers of the United States. Yeah, and, it was and, people they, against the people against the, people. the elite, the, against the power elite, ordinary people, not divided but united against the the, the, the corrupt elite. Yes. By the way, elite is, a, is another word. It's it's really very very common in the United States now, and I wish people would find a word to replace elite. Elite mm. suggests the best. That and, they're special. And, Yes, yes, they're 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 better than they're superior mm-hmm. to. What we have is a criminal operation, and we should refer to right. them as the criminals running our government. 
Well the said. criminals running our government. Absolutely. Not as, not as an elite. They're not an elite. The elite in Ireland, the elite in Ireland are in Port Leash Prison or Magabry or in a grave. Absolutely. They're, the, they're, the, right. they're Ireland's elite. Absolutely. That's, that's, and that's been true throughout history in many different countries, you know. Um, Chris, I think we're gonna, we're gonna leave it there for, for this evening. It's been really great to talk to you and I'm, I'm amazed at your, your, your energy and your drive to uncover this truth because there's so few people who, who, who do that in the world today. Uh, relatively speaking, there are very, very few. And on this one topic, it's great to have one person like you who is focused on that one topic and, and isn't afraid to go where the facts lead you and to try and expose that because, I mean, this world needs the truth more than anything right now and more poverty. I must say that there is a current, uh, there's an Irish printing of the book that has just is just now done last Friday, uh, and it's available in the, in Dublin through the Irish Republican Brotherhood. So right. anyone who wants a copy, anyone in Ireland who wants a copy of my book, they can uh, look up the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and it's, they can Google it or however they want to do it, and they can get a copy there. And anyone, if this is heard in on in, in this side of the Atlantic, the United States, yep. they can call me at 312 664 Seven six five one at three one two six six four seven six five one or Fogartyc F O G A R T Y C Fogartyc for Chris Fogarty Fogartyc at att.net and I want to thank you for um, for this time and we're 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 comrades we're we're Absolutely. both working for the same goal mm-hmm. yes there's a few I'd like you to contact me otherwise because I'm in in touch with a number for example uh, two in Germany. And, and other places who are very well informed, and they, there should be a unity of people. In, they should be in communication with each other. If, if you yes. hadn't reached out to me, I would not know, not know that you exist, and that's a shame. I know. That's, that's what happens a lot, you know. Um, so, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, uh, we have, we've been in contact already, so um, we'll keep that going. And, yeah, just I, one suggestion was you should put a – I didn't see a link on an image for your book on your website – very good point. Very, very good. In fact, there are a few errors there. That book mentions right. some 70 or 72 or something number of regiments. Mm. I counted a couple twice, and I was also using um, information from the public record office that's hard to read. Mm. My, my book has it exactly right. I must both make the corrections there and, and also, uh, by the way, on that website, you'll see merely the barest of bones of the book. The book is comprehensive. Yeah. I believe it's yeah. going to become the definitive work. Absolutely. I hope it, I hope it does. Well, your website is irishholocaust.org, and it's a, good, it's a good website title because it's easy and it's, you, know, you don't have to spell it out. It's irishholocaust.org. Um, have you thought about getting your book on Amazon? Yes. The next, in fact, I'm going to, I have somebody working on an e-book right now. Right, good. It, it, should, it should happen very soon. Right, because we'll we, if we can if we can uh, we'll we'll do our best to promote it and we'll maybe put a, put a link to it up on our website and stuff so that people and uh, can can get access to it and know that it's there, you know, because really this information has to get out because it's not just about Ireland what we're talking about here. This kind of thing has gone on around the world. It was under the British, you know, for several hundred years, but it seems that the U.S. has kind of taken over yeah. or took over uh, during the last uh, century. Uh, yeah. and, and it's and, happening to this day. And it's happening today. You Chris, know, we spoke to an Irish-American couple 
a couple of weeks back who were in Libya in 2011 when it was bombed by NATO. The yeah. figures they're getting there of the number dead is at least a tenth of the population was slaughtered in that bombing, oh which God. completely, oh completely dwarfs the official figures, if there are even any. So this yeah. kind of thing is happening in fast yeah, forward motion same, right now. It's got the same source and it's the same problem and it's happened forever and it needs to stop, you know. Well, we, by the way, Mary and I, my wife and I have been spending only about 5 or 10% of my efforts on matters Irish. We, mm. For the last 15 or so years, we have been working nearly all our time in for justice and against war by Americans. Mm-hmm. So we we have a, one of my signs has been out, pick, picked up by TV and across the country, and it's stop government crimes with blood drops dripping off the word uh, government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good so, job. So we we, rec- we recognize the situation, and we're very very active already. But in order mm-hmm. to stop current genocides and future ones, we should denounce all of them, and that's my book. exactly my book spells out. Yes. It does indeed, and people should read it. And we're going to we're going to promote it. Um, Chris, thanks a million, and uh, you know, long may you continue to do what you're doing. You know, um, thanks a million for coming on. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you both very very much. Okay, you're Thank a you. treasure. God bye. bless you. Bye bye. Have a great evening. Bye bye. Wow. wow, amazing. So uh, we're not going to stay on too much longer here, folks. Um, the latest news, obviously, as probably people listening know, is that the Greek voters have rejected uh, the bailout offer in a pretty comprehensive fashion. It's at least 62% no against the IMF. Okay. Trying to, okay, uh, trying to uh, fleece and terrify the Greek people and by implication everybody else on the planet. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, and uh, obviously, we'll have to wait and see where it, where it goes after that. But um, that's the positive. Everybody can be happy at least for for a, for a few hours until we see what they pull out of the hat next. But um, yeah, go Greece. Go Greece. Where's my halloumi? Two fingers to the troika. Uh, there'll be people celebrating in, in Ireland tonight. I'm going to get a bottle. There've been protests everywhere in support yeah, of them. Yeah, absolutely. They haven't mentioned that in the news recently. Of course not. I mean, Except for RT. I mean, yeah. The mainstream media has been talking about, you know, uh, when they interview different uh, people, they're saying, well, you know, you know, the Germans and the French and the Finnish and the Latvians and the Estonians, they don't want to pay for Greece's debt. They don't, they don't want their money to be taken. I mean, as if they pay for... But, <laughs> as if they do for a start. But secondly, there have been protests all across European cities in support right. of Greece yeah. against the IMF. Yeah. But they just ignore this. The media is just so duplicitous and so egregiously and, you know, obviously lying and ignorant and, and, and just duplicitous, you know. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they just, they don't even care anymore. It's just like, people protest for Greece, the media will tell you, people are protesting against Greece. Yeah. I mean, they just spin it on, turn it on its head and it, it, it's, it's sickening, you know. It makes me throw up, you know. But I need to, I need to go and get some well, Uzo to... Uh, <laughs> we'll see point. now. We'll see now how much of that was all bluff. So, I mean, the head of the the head of Martin Schulz. He's a Brussels Quisling. He's a German ex- uh, current MEP. I think he's uh, in charge of or chairman of the European Parliament at the moment. Anyway, Martin Schulz. He says, oh, if it's going to be a no, that's it. Monday morning, Greeks need to cr- crack open the drachma because they're out of the euro. Yeah. So we'll see you now. That'll be a load of bluff because as we've been discussing, Joe, 
they don't actually want Greece to leave. It's it's a bluff and a counter bluff. So Cyprus and the Greek government are saying, well, we've no interest in leaving the euro in the eurozone. They probably do. Yeah. <laughs> and Brussels is saying, oh, well, if you vote no, that's it. You're out of here. Yeah. But it, no, they, they want them to stay. Absolutely. It's it's kind of like, um, I used an analogy I posted on Facebook today. It's basically like uh, an abusive husband um, saying to his uh, abused wife um, that who, who is planning to leave, who is realizing that this is an abusive situation and this guy's an asshole and uh, she's planning to leave and the, the, the husband seeing this happen is saying, you know, oh, you're going to regret it. You better not go. You're no good on your own. You're pathetic. It's going to go horrible for you if you leave this house, if you leave me, you know. And, if you leave me, that's it. That's it. It's, well, not just that's it, but yeah, exactly. That's it. It's all over. And, and what the abused wife has to do in that situation is remind herself of the abuse, of the lies and of the history and just stick to their guns and don't forget, don't fall prey to the, uh, emotional, to, to manipulation. the emotional manipulation and propaganda. And that's what's go- been going on for the past several weeks. And it seems like the Greek people have stuck to their guns and more part of them. You know? I mean, thank God somebody somewhere has some sense in this effed up world. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show, folks. Uh, thanks to Chris again. Chris is great. We love him. We're going to have him back on and see what else he's been up to, I think, because... Uh, he's just... This guy's got to be... He he's, says he's in his grand I wish I had. What? Oh, he's a great granddad or something. Yeah. He says in his bio, we didn't get to ask him about it, but that he served in the U.S. Army in right. France yeah. around the time, I guess shortly after World War II. Yeah. He's done all of this work in his retirement. Yeah. He must be pushing 90. I don't know. We didn't get to ask no, him about it. Well, that's, well, that's, that's phenomenal. Many, that's not him. many more years than he has, though. We don't want to be. No, well, we don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that's astonishing. And he's just a fountain of information. Yeah, that is great. Uh, and he's been I, mean, I mean, he shows he, he's experienced, and he he has a history there, and he has experience that show the kind of the way these intel agencies and state actors and state agents yeah. work against people, and how and they reach over to Chicago, the insidiousness of them, you know. I mean, yeah, they're all over the place. I mean, the Anglo-American Empire—that's what it's been for a long time—and they don't brook any one messing with their plans for control of absolutely everything and everybody and anybody comes along and tries to... Including control. history. Yeah, anybody comes along and exposes the truth because, I mean, there's continuous lines. It's the same thing what the Brits are doing today in Syria, Brits and the Americans are doing today in Syria, funding ISIS, you know, starting civil wars all over the place. I mean, that's... And basically slaughtering people, hundreds of thousands of people like they did in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a continuous line yeah. right back, back to Ireland, a continuous line back to three, yeah. four, five hundred years ago. It's the same mentality, the same type of people all the way along are doing exactly the same thing. And the details of that are very uh, enlightening. Extremely. Yeah. Like this, uh, his insight into the peace process in Northern Ireland on its own. Yeah. But what is it? Just a small thing. Everybody's out in the street cheering for the peace process and yeah. stuff, and they don't realize it's completely manufactured. It's manufactured. The reason, but the, the Brits, geopolitical context of well, yeah, it was exactly. that the it was, wanted, they knew what was coming. 9-11, war on terror. Right. So let's, let's wrap Middle this East. one up. I, let's they get, could have wrapped it up years ago before thousands of people were slaughtered by yeah. British uh, death squads yeah. in Northern Ireland. But no, we want to slaughter thousands of people with our death squads because that's fun to these cycles in power. So we keep that going. At any time, we could have, we could have just uh, had a peace process and wrapped it up. But we wanted to keep it going and the Brits they probably would have liked to keep Northern Ireland going as a 
as a training ground for their military to go over and you know shoot some shoot some uh, civilians you know here and there they, they enjoy doing that kind of thing the brits would have liked to keep that going but the american big brother america came in and said listen we've got a bigger deal coming down the pipeline here it's called the war on terror you know it's got uh, it's got the whole islamic terrorism thing we're going to invade lots of countries and we need you to back us up mr blair so get with the peace process in northern ireland free up your military free up your resources for elsewhere we're done here you know and that psycho is lauded for his contribution to the peace yeah. process no blah 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 yeah. i'd sling him up as quick as look at him oh. anyway one day someone else will do it uh the universe will take care of him. God, Muhammad, Buddha, Superman, I don't know. Somebody will take care of him. Anyway, folks, we'll leave it there for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks again to Chris. And check out his website, Irish Holocaust. It's very, there's not a lot of stuff on it, but it's very interesting. And check out his book as well. We're going to buy a copy to have it on hand. Anybody with any Irish roots there has a duty, a duty to have this kind of information for posterity, for your children, for your grandchildren. So um, we'll be returning to Irish Affairs in a couple of weeks, but next week we're speaking with scientist John Casey. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know yet. If not, they'll be speaking to us, or we'll be speaking to each other. (laughs) So until then, have a good one. See you next week.